back to Rockstock Channel and thank you for joining RK Equity's second virtual conference featuring promising lithium producers and developers. ASX Lithium Rocks, like our Canada Rocks event in March, will focus exclusively on producers and developers of hard rock lithium projects. As an advisory firm, Rodney and I have argued for over five years that spodumene is the cheapest, fastest, most scalable and most profitable route to producing lithium units throughout this decade. It's also highly sustainable. Save for SQM's massive ramp from 50,000 to 180,000 tons of largely carbonate production from the Atacama, it has been spodumene, mostly from Western Australia, processed in China, that has enabled Tesla to produce and sell as many vehicles as it has. But new jurisdiction Quebec has joined the party. In a few months' time, Spodumene from Piedmont's offtake from North American Lithium may be powering some of the first Cybertrucks coming on sale in Q4. And Brazil is getting hot. AMG Critical Minerals is ramping their lucrative operation from 90,000 to 130,000 tons. And Sigma, trading nearly four times AMG's billion-dollar market cap, has just made its first shipment. Here today at ASX Lithium Rocks from Matthew Boys, Managing Director of Upstart Solus Minerals, who hopes to emulate in Brazil his lithium discovery success at Delta Lithium, with the backing of another Aussie dollar unicorn, Chris Gale's Latin Resources. And Stephen Biggins and Colin Skidmore, whose stellar resumes include discovery of Finis for Core and at Uranium One. They're getting ready to turn the infrastructure-blessed mining jurisdiction of Broken Hill into the next new Australian lithium location. It has been nearly three years since Tesla's battery day in September 2020, which began the lithium 3.0 cycle we are currently experiencing. RK Equity is monitoring now about 180 lithium companies, more than three times the approximate 50 companies we were tracking back then. A few years ago, when Rodney and I were just getting started with the audio-only Lithium Iron Rocks podcast, I envisioned our ordinary Joe Sixpack investor listeners and now YouTube viewers as navigating the futuristic world depicted in the Jetsons cartoon of my youth as Jane and George Battery Pack. Some, like my friend Robert Mintak of Standard Lithium, joke that futuristic DLE innovation in old oil fields is better than conventional Fred Flintstone quarrying. But Rodney and I are unashamedly content to kiss Fred's boss, the Mr. Slates of the world, who will earn a disproportionate share of profits throughout the mine to battery to electric vehicle supply chain. If you own your own rock, you're God. Otherwise, you're screwed, in Mineral Resources Chris Ellison's colorful words. Keep it simple stupid. Keep it spodumene stupid. Oil majors seem to think differently. Coke passed on an opportunity at the height of COVID to invest in a spodumene client of mine that has since been a 10-bagger. Exxon has reportedly invested $100 million petty cash to buy galvanic energy in a similar location as Standard Lithium. RK Equity has supported two DLE stories over the years. Compass Minerals, for which we helped introduce energy source minerals. ESM's Iliad technology has cracked the Salton Sea code in our understanding and has been for 10 plus years successfully piloting brines from all over the world, including the Great Salt Lake, which Compass suggests could be commissioning stage one 10,000 tons of lithium carbonate by 2024. On paper, Coke is down 49% on its $100 million investment in Standard and 21% on its $250 million in Compass Minerals. But they tend to be long-term investors and are working 
to make both projects successful. I'm rooting for them. The world will need all the lithium chemicals it can get its hands on. Massive investment in USA's oil and gas has enabled a certain level of fossil fuel energy independence. The USA is blessed with significant conventional and unconventional lithium resources that can create a history repeat for our lithium-powered future. There's also a lot of lithium in the Leduc Reservoir in Alberta. One of the only bright spots on the August scoreboard has been E3's stellar rise to 52-week and close to all-time higher love. At one point last week, at $4, E3, whose field pilot is ready to go, and a first bag of carbon it was proven to be produced, had a market cap on par with two prominent TSX spodumene plays. Kiss from a Rose, Critical Elements Lithium, and the world-scale size and high-grade Frontier Lithium. After years of lagging previous DLE darlings, Standard Lithium, Vulcan, and Lake Resources, will E3 continue to move higher from its $167 million market cap and catch up with these peers? Or as summer turns to the historically positive fall EV sales and lithium equity season, will these two Barney Rubble Canada rocks trading at 52-week lows start to outperform? Time will tell. Stay tuned as we will interview Critical Elements Lithium and many more TSX and Canada Rock stories in coming months. Comparing the Archie Equity scoreboard just before battery day to today contains a lot of interesting information. While specific micro-narratives within Lithium shift every 6 to 12 months, Hard Rock, Spodgmean software developers and producers have been consistently strong performers and have risen up the charts to higher love than their brine and unconventional brethren. Pilbara Minerals' Dale Henderson will join Rodney and me for a long-form deep dive later this month. Some stats from his annual results presentation last week serve as a good teaser for that interview. And for those who aspire to mimic Pilbara's meteoric rise from explorer to developer to producer over the last few years. Pilbara generated nearly $3 billion U.S. dollar revenue and $2.3 billion U.S. in EBITDA, an incredible 82% software margins in 2023 while paying hefty dividends and retaining meaningful cash for organic growth and potential inorganic M&A. Could Pilbara invest in or buy one or more of the 10 companies presenting here today? Albemarle has, in Patriot, Mineral Resources has, in Global Lithium, and some others. Thanks again to Champion Electric Metals for this excellent slide showing how as the Quebec fires have abated, LTHM.CN and many of its James Bay Spodumene exploration peers could follow Patriot and win some success in making a world-class discovery. Wondering, now that Patriot has announced a maiden resource and attracted Albemarle at near all-time high valuation, is the company now transitioning to the orphan period as it advances economic studies to PEA, PFS, DFS, and seeks financing, permitting, and final investment decision? Or is Blair Way's allusions to Robert Friedland's Voises Bay nickel sale two decades ago an M&A analogy that will play out, with Albemarle playing the role of tech with a 9.9% stake ahead of a bidding war for $4.3 billion Canadian between Inco and Falconbridge? I'd highly encourage all viewers to read the big score to truly understand public venture capital investing in mining and quality discoveries in bull market cycles like we're currently experiencing. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think it more likely that Winsome closes its 80% valuation gap with Patriot than Patriot sees a bid at three times its current valuation. Albemarle may have invested $100 million to put its foot on Corvette, but it is Liontown's potential production in 2024 
that has attracted ALB's $3.5 billion bid. Could we see Winsome's Adina follow Patriot and now Alchem's James Bay into triple-digit resource territory? Stay tuned. I also think Talon Metal's high-grade sulfide nickel in Minnesota is a better analogy to Voisey's Bay and could be a takeover target for someone like Andrew Forrest or IGO, but I digress. What Albemarle's investments in both Patriot and Liontown tell me, along with SQM's $585 million bid for Azure and Livent Alchem's commitment to Quebec Rock, is that the world's smartest lithium incumbents are heavily focused on the six sigma S's in lithium. Secure, scalable, strategic, sustainable, spodumene, supply chain. Lithium Summer Haze was the title I chose for last month's Lithium Bowl. Note, if you'd like to get this free newsletter emailed to you directly, visit RK Equity's website at rkequity.com and fill in the form with your email address. All companies in Q2 reporting periods spoke about the very buoyant outlook for the remainder of this decade, justifying their significant near-term capex to support that growth. But none provided any near-term guidance. All spoke instead of near-term volatility in the China spot price. July's haze turned stormy for lithium equities in August. But why? Commodity equities follow commodity prices. After rebounding strongly in May, lithium flatlined through mid-July, but has declined for six straight weeks since. Though today's pricing in the low 30,000s are still amazingly healthy compared to the base case projections just a few years ago, closer to $12,000 a ton. And these prices provide more than sufficient incentive to invest in new supply. Ten-year yields have soared in August, in particular real rates, both increasing the cost of potential debt finance for development projects and the discount rate used to value cash flows far into the future. If incumbents are failing to guide us through the immediate haze, who am I to know better? Talks I had with traders at fast markets in late June were optimistic of another price spike by Q4, that is, from around October. But more recent talks with them have them pushing this timeline a few months into next year. Supply from China brines is greater in the summer, they say. After three years of no-travel COVID, cathode and cell manufacturer demand is more muted as they are taking longer than normal summer vacations. Broad macro concerns are pervasive in China, with a real estate bust among other negative economic headlines. And yet, latest EV sales data per my partner Rodney Hooper show China on track to meet 31% growth in 2023, with no sign of demand destruction. As for interest rates, Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole speech pushed back expectations that rate hikes might soon turn into rate cuts, with higher for longer sentiment taking root. Whether lithium is a specialty chemical or commodity business will continue to be an ongoing debate, but let there be no doubt, the combination of high interest rates and non-rising lithium prices has resulted in the commoditization of lithium equity valuations. Incumbents ALB and SQM are now trading at single-digit PEs and EBITDA multiples, no better and in many cases worse than traditional low multiple commodity producers like Rio Tinto, Exxon, or Freeport. Such valuations could very well now make them accretive to an M&A from big oil, big mining, big chemical, or even big auto, who two or three years ago would balk at the mismatch between their multiples. 
Morningstar's Seth Goldstein shows Albemarle doubling revenues and EBITDA from 2022 through 2025, while SQM will be flat to down during this period. I've not been a fan of SQM since they exited Lithium Americas in 2018. Political risk is high in Chile, and for SQM in particular, whose concession ends in 2030. Albemarle, which paid about 14 times EBITDA nearly a decade ago to secure its cornerstone Atacama and Greenbush's assets, trades at a 75% discount to that multiple today, despite raising guidance last quarter and outlining a highly credible path to more than double production capacity by 2027. This 15-year chart of Albemarle shows its valuation at the lowest it's ever been, despite soaring earnings per share over the past four quarters. With valuations this low, the bar is higher for speculating on pre-producing companies. I've increased my exposure to Albemarle and Livent in recent weeks due to highly favorable risk-reward, while at the same time making some new exploration bets on Champion, Solus, and Stellar Metals, recycling and hoping to replicate my recent winsome success. I'm holding firm some older stories, grinding through the orphan period, but have significant near-term catalysts that could cause them to re-rate as E3 has this month. My ASX and AIM is lame, Barney Rubbles, are European metal holdings and Atlantic lithium. And as I mentioned previously, critical elements in frontier lithium on the TSX. All four stocks are suffering from substantially decreased liquidity. It would not take a lot of new buying to reverse from 52-week lows to 52-week highs. Not investment advice. Do your own research, as always. Albemarle once again raised its base case lithium demand forecast to 3.7 million LCE tons by 2030, which correlates to McKinsey's high case in a recent note they wrote highlighting Australia's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to develop downstream lithium hydroxide capabilities. I continue to pay close attention to the Tesla commentariat. The limiting factors, Jordan Giesinger did a fantastic deep dive into lithium that is a must watch in my opinion. His conclusion that Tesla is likely to run into some supply problems by 2027, despite using very optimistic forecasts of lithium supply, including from unconventional DLE sources, makes me wonder how bad it might become if the lithium industry follows its traditional path, as Red Spencer of Canaccord recently noted, of being on average three years late. Rodney and I look forward to bringing to Rockstock Channel interviews with both Jordan and Reg later this month. Institutional money manager Gary Black sees Tesla's Cybertruck launch, like previous Tesla new product launches, as a catalyst for Tesla's stock, arguing this new product in a new category as a walking billboard driving consumers to research Tesla online and ultimately buy a Model 3 or Model Y, if not a Cybertruck. I hope he's right as what's good for Tesla stock is generally good for lithium equities. America's 2024 election cycle is already underway, with a rematch of Trump and Biden, the most likely outcome looking at both men's vast lead against their peers. I wish America could do better than present us again with this choice. But looking solely and selfishly through the prism of what matters for lithium, we could do a lot worse than staying the course with President Big Money Biden's industrial policy to combat climate change with Made in America and its friends, EVs and battery materials. I'm among those who have some concern with Kamala Harris's ability to take over in the event President Biden can't complete a second term. If anyone in the administration is listening, 
I suggest breathing the fresh air of Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm into the campaign as Veep. No one would be as energetic and compelling advocate for Bidenomics. Rodney and I will continue to bring back some Washington policy commentators like Cowan's John Miller and Ben Steinberg of political lobbyist Ben Strategies to Rockstock Channel later this year. And with all those advertisements out of the way, I'd like now to start the conference with a plug for Rockstock Channel's two formal sponsors, Brinefield Services Contractor Zalandez and Lithium Royalty Corp. Zalandez provides services in subsurface data visualization, downhole geophysics, and other services for lithium brine operations. They just expanded into North America. No matter where you sit in the brine industry, Zalandez can help you speed up and improve your projects. Go to zalandez.com for more. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher grade, low-cost projects from exploration to production, Lithium Royalty Corp covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is publicly traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more about Lithium Royalty Corp, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. Welcome back, Keith Phillips, to ASX Lithium Rocks. For the first time, I'm wearing a Canada Rocks hat, not the Rockstock Channel hat, because you are now a producer with Sayana in Quebec. We introduced at the beginning of this conference the famous Lassonde curve, which talks about companies re-rating on discoveries, right? And then as they go into production... That hasn't seemed to happen with Piedmont stock, but uh, your restart with Sion seems to be going well. You are listed on the ASX. You've re-domiciled to the U.S. Can you just update us on what's happening in Quebec, but also as an astute financier and, and deal maker, any assessment on what's happening in the market and update us on Quebec? Sure, Howard. Thanks for having me. We are in production. Sayana Quebec is a joint venture between Sayana Mining and Piedmont Lithium. Sayana owns 75%. They're the operator of the joint venture. The joint venture has several assets. The one that's producing now is NAL, North American Lithium, which is a brownfield asset we acquired out of receivership a couple of years ago. But Pierre Lassonde was correct in his vision that lithium equities or mining equities trade in cycles based on their status of evolution. So we have four assets. One of them is now producing and is about to generate revenue and cash flow, we hope for us. It might be very significant and that's great. And hopefully our stock will re-rate in time. Now it's just a question of bringing them through the development chain into production and harvesting cash flow. Okay. Now that you're a producer, do you plan to put out guidance for 2023 and 2024? I believe it was announced you're expecting 56,500 tons to be sold in the second half of this year. Yeah, we will begin to do quarterly conference calls in early November on the back of our third quarters. We should certainly have guidance then for the rest of the year. We may have a call in advance of that to provide guidance to the market on both 
shipments and invoicing and revenue recognition for Quebec, as well as the capital spending and development plans for our other assets now. Candidly, we have a very simple philosophy. We want to under-promise and over-deliver. And the closer, further along we get in the ramping up of North American lithium, the more clarity we have on what will actually happen this year and next in terms of production volumes, shipment volumes, shipment allocation between the joint venture and Piedmont. So the JV has shipments. Piedmont gets the greater of 113,000 tons a year or 50% of production. The JV, which we share, has the rest of the shipments. Okay, and the year started, I think it was, I don't know, January 2nd or 3rd, where you restructured your offtake arrangement with Tesla, moved from fixed pricing to variable pricing and to be sourced from Quebec as opposed to Carolina. You then later did a deal with LG Chem. Both of those were for a limited quantity, I think like over three or four years. When do you expect to be delivering to Tesla and LG? And why were those deals, I guess, so short and was the discussions with North American Lithium on carbonate plant factoring into the way you structured those offtakes? Yeah, that was a consideration. There is a partially built refinery on the NAL site. It, it, we are evaluating, essentially rebuilding that. There's a lot of work to be done, including a lot of engineering to be done. So we think that'll take time. The LG deal is a four-year deal starting in the second half of 2023, going into the second half of 2027. We think for sure we'll be producing and selling spodumene concentrate through that time period because we think that downstream at NAL would take at least that long with all the work that needs to be done. The Tesla deal was shorter term, I think really in part due to their requirements. Both of the deals can be extended by mutual agreement, so I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them extend. Piedmont is going to load its first shipment in the next two weeks in, in the port of Quebec City. That will be going through a trading company to their customers. That'll be approximately 15,000 tons at market prices. Our next shipment, which should follow in the next 30 to 60 days, will be should be to LG Chem. That's our current plan. It's conceivable that the shipment, if that is the timing, might be inside the new Cybertruck that are going to be launched in Q4. We'll see. Okay, moving on to Tennessee. Congratulations on getting fully permitted there. That project received a DOE grant, or, I don't know, 10 or 11 months ago. And then you've announced advancing on Atlantic stage two. Tennessee is meant to be fed by the Oya project in Ghana. Could you update at all? I think you were recently in Ghana. Like, what is the time to final investment decision on Ghana and also on Tennessee? Yeah, let me address that. I'll start with Tennessee. Tennessee is fully permitted for construction. So that's the good news. We still need to raise $800 million to build that project. We do have a grant for $142 million now. We've spent over $40 million on detailed engineering for the project. So it's advancing aggressively. Uh, we would love to finance that project largely off of our balance sheet. So we currently own 100%. We have the grant. We have the permits. We have the engineering kind of ready to go. We're going to produce 30,000 tons of battery quality lithium hydroxide in Tennessee. That'll be IRA qualified. It is planned to be supplied from Ghana, principally, from the Awoya project. We're confident that will happen. There's a lot of spodumene coming online in other parts of Africa, in South America, in Australia. But we do think the Awoya project will be the primary feedstock. We think the definitive feasibility study was a home run, taking production from 255,000 tons a year to 340 with upside, with flotation down the road. So it's now a very consequential product, project 340,000 tons a year of spodumene concentrate, DMS only, 
CapEx is still low at, I think, around $180 million. Our share will be around 125 or 130. So the timeline that Atlantic has laid out of that being ready to go into construction kind of in the second half of 2024 seems viable to us. Tennessee should be on a similar timeline where we hope to get to FID in middle of 2024 and really based on funding. We'll be there sooner if we should be selling spodumene from Ghana to the market before we begin to ship it into Tennessee. And as a reminder for people, getting material from Ghana where the Awoya asset is, is pretty straightforward and pretty low cost from a transport perspective. Okay, that's interesting. So you expect to have spodumene revenue and cash flow a bit before Tennessee is up and running. If you don't get the financing structure you want for Tennessee, or if it takes a bit longer than you expect, if you do foresee just selling Ghana spodumene in a similar way that you're selling Quebec spodumene for a bit longer? Yeah, for sure. Listen, the prices, despite having fallen off considerably, the spodumene business is still profitable. NAL will produce for far less than market prices. We obviously have a fixed price, a ceiling price in our contract with them. So we're paying 900 a ton. And we do view Awoya and Tennessee as independent projects. So we're going to get Awoya up and running as quickly as we can. It'll be a cash flow generator, we hope, we think very substantially, frankly, considerably more than Quebec, which, so that's exciting for us. So the faster that happens, the happier we are. We want Tennessee to move forward swiftly as well, but Tennessee... Ghana, we're going to need 125 or 130 million for our share of Ghana CapEx. We might be able to fund. We think we can fund that through cash flow from Quebec. It's pretty straightforward. We can't fund an $800 million capital project through cash flow from Quebec. So we need third-party funding and we're very focused on that and optimistic. And it's just a question of bringing together the right structure. Okay. And North Carolina, where it all started and now that's the fourth project. Could you update us on on that? Albemarle has been talking up there at Kings Mountain operation, I think for 2027, 2028, above and beyond their there's Magnolia or their Argentine assets. So they, they definitely seem to have a preference for hard rock and believe that's going to be a key asset for them. You're not too far away from that, but what's the update? So what's the status there and when we might see Carolina lithium get permitted? Yeah, listen, a couple things. So we're very happy to see Albemarle focusing on Kings Mountain. I've always known Kings Mountain's a past producer. For those that don't know, it produced for, I think, approximately 30 years from the 1950s to the 1980s. The lithium markets were very different when they shut that down. The initial 30 years were mined already, so it's a pretty big pit. But then bringing that back into production, we think is a validation of our strategy of focusing on North Carolina. The tin spodumene belt in North Carolina is prolific. It's one of the three biggest spodumene belts in the world, along with Monono and Greenbushes. There was another mine that Leibniz's predecessor used to own just down the road from us. So... We think it validates our strategy. Demler, the regulator in the state, has been very constructive. They're asking all the questions you might expect. This project is more complex than most. It's more complex than Albemarle's or really any other project I'm aware of because we're going to have our chemical plant on the same site as the mine. That is a wonderful thing. Right now, Spodumene travels around the world, basically to China to be converted. We're going to do it on one site. But we brought two very different operations onto the same site, a mining and concentrate operation and then a chemical plant operation with very different permitting issues and focuses. And we're going to have tailings from both sites, uh, from both plants on one site. That's unusual because, again, nobody else has their chemical plant on their mine site. It's the right way to do things, but it's made that permitting process a little longer than it might have otherwise been. We are in the third phase of questions and responses with Demler. It's going well. We updated the commissioners two weeks ago at a hearing. 
I think they are learning more about the project. Obviously, it's the biggest industrial project in the history of the county. It would be the biggest investment in the history of the county. Our timing is to build Tennessee first and to start Carolina at the earliest a year later. So if Tennessee begins middle of 2024 and we begin Carolina middle of 2025, and that's the guidance we've given. So that's the kind of project where I'd love to be a bigger company by then. I'd love for Quebec to be producing cash flow. I'd love for Ghana to be producing cash flow before we take on that sort of project. I think time's on our side there. Okay. That's great. Thanks as always, Keith, for the update and look forward to reconnecting again soon. Next up, we have Neil Herbert, the chairman of Atlantic Lithium. We had you on not that long ago with Keith Muller, and I had the privilege of seeing you again in New York. You had some good road shows, I think, after your DFS. And here we are. Give us an update. Rodney will ask most of the questions. Neil, if we can kick off, I had a refresh to check where everything's at. The project economics are standout, it looks like, thanks to the mineralogy and logistics. But the market appears to be skeptical of Africa, which some think is a single country, and what royalties and permitting will be like. Can you just please differentiate for the listeners Ghana as opposed to Africa and update us on the permitting process and the current timelines? Happy to do that. As some of your listeners will know, Ghana is a long-established mining jurisdiction over 100 years. Over a dozen operating mines currently in country, mainly in gold, but also in bauxite and manganese. So a very established mining jurisdiction. It is also a well-developed economy. I would say probably the most important gold miner now in Africa. I think it's now surpassed South Africa and also prosperous with a high level of education. So one of the benefits we have in country is there are lots of people who want to work for us who are very well qualified to do so. So we don't have to import staff and really very good infrastructure. But in terms of the permitting side, so yes, there have been a number of changes in not only in Africa to the to the permitting regimes as countries focus on the critical minerals uh, sector. So there, there is discussion about this in Ghana as well. We've been in consultation with the government on the Green Minerals Initiative. I don't think there's anything too terrible in that initiative. And in terms of the permitting, what I would say is you can expect three things to happen, I think, in the next month or so which is firstly the issue of the mining license, which is obviously a key license for us to take the project to production. So we're looking to break ground on the project next September and be in first production April of the year following. We also expect, and we, we've had this conversation a number of times over the last year or so with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, didn't want to lead on too much expectation, but do expect actually we'll see an investment from them during the course of the next month or so as well. And indeed, uh, clarity on the green minerals policy, which we've been in consultation with the government with recently. Great. So that seems to be very encouraging. Another thing, just in terms of the deposit that I think is worth highlighting, is that 90% of their warrior resource is P1, the coarse grain material. Can you just explain why that's important and hugely helpful? Yeah. So it's really down to the processing options available. So if you have mainly coarse grain, which is obviously what we have, we can go for a simpler processing route without flotation. So this really means that it's less OPEX and less CAPEX for the project. So it actually contributes to a lower cost operation. So this is the ideal world in terms of deposits. A good parallel would be Sigma in Brazil. It's the same style of deposit as that. So 
yes, this is about as good as it gets. We sit very good against, very well against our peers, and indeed other projects in Africa almost all include some element of flotation. So we're very lucky in terms of the style of mineralization we have at the deposit. Just in line with my previous question and taking the project forward in latest news releases, Piedmont's committing to the project. They are down, if I'm not mistaken, to fund the first 70 million of CapEx once permitted, and then after that, you share the costs equally. The slides you had you for about 57 and a half million would be your share. You've got an unencumbered 50% of production for partnering or offtake. What is your current thinking around how you're going to fund your share of the balance of the capex? It's a good question, Rodney. In the first place, one has to observe that actually in mining terms, and particularly for a project like this with an MPV of 1.5 billion, we're talking about a very small amount of money overall. We have not pursued financing options before now because of the nature of the agreement with Piedmont was that, that they would provide initial funding, which they've been doing, plus the first 70 million and a half of all remaining. And because they're providing the first 70 million, we don't need to hurry out in terms of getting the money in. But the approach in terms of that balance of funding, which people will see, will see come together over the next couple of months, is the first case. Yes, we are talking to the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Ghana. It's an important local stakeholder. We would like to see them involved. We've talked about this before. The discussions have gone on for some time, but do now expect that to come to fruition. And secondly, we're also looking at the offtake financing option, of which there's lots of examples in the market. Now, there are very few projects that are coming forward to market in the next couple of years, actually bringing product forward in the next two years, which means that we're in a very good situation with offtakers and the response has been overwhelming. So we're running a little bit of a process now about the first few years of offtake. Okay, excellent. And I noticed as well, there was some potential for pre-production revenue that's mentioned with a limited investment in the slide deck? Yes, so what we've been looking at is uh, effectively these modular units. So this is a discrete investment, so it's around $15 million. And for that, I think it produces well over $100 million of revenue in the, the first year of production. So what we're looking at, as I said previously, was uh, breaking ground on the project next September and then starting production in revenue in the following April. These units have been used in other sectors of mining, not being used so far in lithium, but the principles are the same. So this provides us two advantage, obviously early revenue, which actually reduces the capex requirement effectively that we need to fund, but also provides us the opportunity for training, getting our staff used to operating with the units before we start main production at the beginning of 2026. And just as far as just re-looking at the DFS, you've got a 12-year mine life, but at the same time, you've really drilled such a small portion of the tenements. Do you see uh, clear potential for uh, uh, additional resource upgrades and getting to a 20-year mine life? Yes, I actually think the project will, like many mining projects, will run on for many years. So 12 years initially in the mine life, but one would expect to double that, if not do better over time. So obviously we didn't want to wait further. We wanted to take the product production to take advantage of good prices for lithium. But we are continuing to drill and you'll see some more encouraging results come out over the next month. So again, we've continued to work on that property. I think we've worked around 3% of it so far, but we see lots of good areas for us to continue to work and add resource so that we can feed the plant in the future with. You mentioned you're having a bit of a process for the offtake. Have you appointed an investment bank for that? 
Yeah, we're running it with one of the major investment banks, which has very good experience in that space. So that they're, they're taking it through the hurdles, doing the initial stage now of discussions. We're looking at, uh, and to be clear on this, is only looking at the first few years production. So that will provide us with financing, but again, leave us free to be able to do something else with the uptake in the future. Okay, great. And I know there was some talk about your increase in CapEx. After your DFS, your stock went down, but the DFS cost increase was pretty much line for line with an increase in throughput, no? You're absolutely correct. So we effectively looked at a higher production scenario than we'd looked in the pre-feasibility study when we did the DFS. So we're just looking at a bigger mining operation, which obviously is more efficient, provides more revenue and more profit over time. Just a reminder, Atlantic is a client of RK Equities. Rodney has written an updated research note a few months ago after the DFS. It's available on our website and the fair value estimate is meaningfully higher than where the stock price is today. Obviously, this is not investing advice, but for your information, feel free to check that out on RK Equities website. I think we're going to wrap it up there, Neil. We just want to do, we appreciate your coming to this uh, ASX Lithium Rocks. Uh, oh, importantly to say, uh, you originally listed on AIM is lame, and then you decided to join the ASX with a fantastic ticker symbol A11, what, in November or October of, of last year. So you now qualify to participate in this ASX Lithium Rocks event. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Howard. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel, Guy Below. We had you in the Canada Rocks event, our first conference earlier this year, but you are now in production at North American Lithium. So Rodney has a series of questions. We're going to have him just take it away from here. Thoughts I've seen in your presentation, you've given some numbers, but if you could please, with Nell having started production, can you give us an update on your current production run rate? The shipping schedule, if that's all on track, and when you expect to reach the target volume equivalent of 226,000 a year. Thank you very much, Rodney. We're so excited following the successful startup. Again, that plant and mine operation were put back in operation within two years and with less than $200 million. And as promised, we started production in March and ramp up is going absolutely very well. We're exactly where we said that we would be. So we are the team. We have an amazing team. This is something I wanted to say that we've been quite successful in putting in place a, a team, a great team of, of operators and mind builders. So all that together helped us achieving our goals and targets. And, and for now, the team is happy to be there. You've seen the DFS that has confirmed a $2.2 billion value just for now. But you've seen the numbers, of course, for the, uh, the quarter. We did produce in excess of close to 30,000 ton of, of concentrate and uh, ramp up. We're quite pleased about that. Year to date, at the end of June, we were at 33,000, a little bit above 33,000 ton, close to 5.5% grade for the concentrate. Exactly where we said, so we're testing our processes and our system. We're pushing concentrate from the mine site all the way on the rail down to the port. And as, as you have seen earlier on August 1st, we have announced our first revenues, our first shipment has left the port and uh, yeah that was that was quite a moment uh, for the team yeah exactly where we said we would be things are going very well 
and it should be a very successful year for Niles Dean. So when are you likely to reach the 226 annualized production rate? The way things are going, we, we said when we started, we said that we should be there somewhere around Q4. Uh, we're still in line with those uh, those expectations. Okay, that's great. And you mentioned briefly the five and a half. Are you going to continue to produce a concentrate around that grade? With the current market conditions, five and five point four, five point five. This is the optimal point for concentrate grade in terms of of volumes and revenues. So now this is what we're planning to do this year. But if market demands 6%, we can produce it. We've proved it that the plant can handle it very successfully. But 5.4, 5.5, that's the sweet spot right now for us. Okay, great. And you, you previously alluded to possible offtakes. How are those discussions progressing? Yeah, it's progressing very well. We are in discussions with different companies and we should be able to announce some good news in the weeks and months ahead of us. So is that likely to be something happen this year? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The discussions are going very well. There's a high demand for the concentrate and we've seen it with the, our very first shipment with on spec material on spec. So it went very well, but there's no issues for that. Yeah. Only positive. Okay. That's good. And you're doing drilling in the TB in the hub to define a larger resource to supply the concentrator. How's that campaign going? We have a very aggressive drilling campaign within the pit and also outside the pit. We did acquire extra land just east of the deposit through our partnership with Jordan. This year, we're planning to drill 50,000 meters. And that is going very well, going on, on schedule. And we're very confident that this will allow us to grow further at the resources at now. There's never been a better place to add resources next to a mine. And we're drilling within the, within the, the pit area. We're very confident that this will allow us to grow further. And uh, you released a study on, on some downstream to produce lithium carbonate. At NAL, you've got a target date of 2026. How's that all coming on? Oh yeah, let's go. That's going on very well. We are currently doing some trade-off studies with our, uh, with our partners. And we were, were ali aligning the, the next step for the studies, doing it right. But we're fully focused on that, the unveiling of the PCTS, the pre-feasibility pre study, if you wish, has shown that going downstream now is the right thing to do, and that will deliver huge values for our stakeholders and for Sayona and for Quebec and, and Canada. That thing will deliver in excess of a $3.2 billion value. And when we combine that with now, what we've announced the DFS. Now it's greater than $5 billion. So very exciting news. And I would say a great future for, for now and our stakeholders. And then on to the Northern hub and something that we've definitely been keeping our eye on. If we look at Moblin and where it's got to, it looks like that could be shaping up to be a really substantial resource. I know you've got an exploration program going at the moment. Can you give us some feedback there? Oh, that's right. The Moblin is uh, has the DNA to become a world-class deposit. When we did purchase Moblin, we had the resources of about 14 million ton. And within just nine months, 
And through 37,000 meters of drilling, we brought that resources from 14 million now to 50 million ton. Oh, this is huge. And uh, this year, we've added on top of that a drilling program, probably one of the largest drilling program in Quebec of 60,000 meters on top of that. And that drilling campaign is going very well. We were stopped for a few weeks because we had some wildfires in the area. So we had to evacuate the area. But the operation have resumed. And now I think we are about six or seven, seven drills currently at Mont that we're ramping up to, to eight drills over there. So it's going very well and can't wait to, to unveil the new, the new resources sometime, sometime next year. But Mont is very Yeah, I mean, I don't so. know if you're allowed to, but uh, my sense is that could be tri- triple figures. You could hit 100. Are you allowed to say, is that a target that you'd have in mind? Definitely that Mont has that type of DNA and what we drill and we see through the core. Very, it's what we have announced when we did unveil the new resources at Mont It's something fantastic. The, the deposit is it's thick, continuous. It's on near surface and on surface will have a low, we believe this will have a low strip, low strip ratio, low cost. Mont-Blanc is within two kilometer of a, of the, of an highway in Jane, Northern Chibougamo. And yeah, we truly feel that Mont-Blanc will be an exceptional deposit and will deliver lots of value for all our stakeholders, including First Nation, the government of Quebec, Canada and all our stakeholders. Yeah, very, very exciting news and the drilling takes place. And we will also unveil our definitive feasibility study in November. Yeah, lots of exciting news coming coming from Mobla. You own 60% of Mobla and what's the other 40% then? Is there a path for you to get 100% of that project? We own 60% of Mobla and the 40% is owned by Sequent, which is the government of Quebec or investment, investment Quebec. And we're quite pleased for, to work with in partnership with Sequent for the more to develop the Mobland deposit because Sequem has a lot of experience, a lot of expertise uh, drilling in, in James Bay and explorating in James Bay. And just next to Mobland, we have, we did the purchase, the claims from Troilus, which give us another 1000 square kilometer of, of land just next to Mobland. So imagine how can we grow? the resources, the resources over there. So when we look at all the, all the value that will come out of, of now and will come out of Mobland and the, the going downstream at both Mobland and now I will definitely bring a lot of value together. And this, this will be reflected at one point. Where does your cash balance stand? How long will that last? At the end of June, our cash balance was at 211 million dollar and more importantly zero debt and with the just had the first shipment and so we're getting our first revenue stream coming in and that we have also all the all the shipment also that will be conducted in the next quarter so that we're good to go for many quarters okay excellent so thanks very much for coming on to rockstock channel again for our second conference and good luck. We look forward to uh, further shipments, revenue, offtake, and exploration upside at Mobline. Yeah, that's right. Lots of exciting news coming. Uh, very, very exciting time. Thank you very much. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Hi guys, thanks very much for joining us today. For those that don't know, we've got Colin Skidmore, who is the CEO, and Stephen Biggins, who is the chairman of Stellar Metals. Guys, if you could just give us a bit of background on the project, not many people will be aware of all that's going on, and just talk through the holding structure, the uh, JV with uh, Everest on, uh, on the Titan project. Absolutely. So um, we recently picked up this year the, the Trident Lithium project. It is actually held in joint venture uh, with uh, Everest uh, Metals Corporation. They have a 10% free carry at the moment. And uh, this project is in New South Wales, in the far west part of New South Wales, in the Broken Hill Block. And it was a historically mined area initially for tin turn of the, the previous century, you know, back in the 1800s, uh, then they started to realise that there was obligonite mineralisation, lithium at surface. And so they conducted mining in the, the 1940s, 50s, and through even to the early 1960s of obligonite ore from a number of these swarmed pegmatites, which are, are quite broad, about 100 metres wide and extend for, you know, kilometres in length uh, in this area. Um, there's been no work really that's been done in the area since the late 1960s, uh, when the, the previous operator died and uh, they were contemplating going to an open cut. And modern exploration, as is so typical in uh, in Broken Hill area, has been very poor and it all just focused around the one great big lead zinc mine, which is at Broken Hill and is world famous for, uh, but very little work was ever done outside. Of course, being in that location, there's lots of access to port and so on, all good. Absolutely. So Broken Hill, the world's largest lead zinc, high grade lead zinc ore body. We have, you know, an existing mine. It's still been running. It's still running after 140 years. We have rail infrastructure. We now have other companies which are setting up cobalt mines there. Excellent roads through to South Australia. In fact, it's much, much closer to South Australia than the rest of New South Wales. So Sydney is like 1,200 kilometres away. It's only 400 kilometres across to Adelaide, where there's ports. And at the moment, the ore from uh, Broken Hill Mine goes straight down the railway line, straight onto the ports at uh, Port Pirie and off. Uh, and the lithium can go wherever it needs to go. That's uh, fantastic. And now to the question of, you know, of what's there. Uh, you released some excellent rock chip sample results. Can you fill us in a bit on it? There were some high grades there you know, a, a, a decent sized area that you have as well. Yeah, so look, the area, I mean, the tenement holding we have is about 700 square kilometers in, in the area, but we're really focusing on this Urali pegmatite field, which is about 20 kilometers by five, 10 kilometers wide. And there are these swarms of pegmatites. They have historically been looked at, but just very superficially by a couple of operators who just came in and we realized that they're uh, LCT types. So we went there, we picked up some rock chip samples on surface. We've only just got on the ground up there and you know, recognized that there were probably obligonite, which is a lithium aluminium phosphate, up into the lab. And it came back with some pretty stunning grades as reported, you know, up to uh, 5%. So I think five of the seven samples that I sent in came back over 5% uh, lithium. And look, it's obligonite mineralization because at surface, it does not weather as much, but the system is likely to have spodumene at depth. And just as the other projects, which both Stephen and I worked on, because we both used to uh, work at Coric Lithium, and we were involved in the uh, discovery of the, the Finnis project there. And it's exactly the same there, whereas at surface, you see the obligonite, and it wasn't until we start drilling that you start to see the spodumene come in. Stephen was managing director there and knows far more about uh, that, so I might let him uh, fill you in a little bit more on that. 
Yeah, thanks, Colin. The, that's really why we Stella took its interest in the the Trident Lithium project was really because of the you know the huge scale of the pegmatite system that we know exists there, uh, the fact that it's been mined historically for for both tin and for for lithium, and that we know that the you know, mineralization that we the lithium mineralization that we're seeing at surface, and we've just released those results in the last couple of days is typical of you know, large lithium systems around the globe. We saw obligonite mineralisation at Finnis um, at surface, which was historically mined there. Uh, but you will also see that in Brazil um, you know, with Sigma's large project there and, and um, Latin resources, where ambligonite, historic obligonite mine was really sort of the lead in, if you like. And with further exploration, we expect to be able to uh, I suppose in the zone pegmatite systems be tracking down the um, you know, the spodumene rich part of the the lithium rich pegmatite system, which we know you know extends for you know at least sort of twenty kilometres by by ten kilometres in scale. And uh, in terms of heading towards that exploration program, how is is it? I presume it's year round access, no problems. It's just a question of, of getting permitting sorted out. Who is it that you engage with in that region to to uh, to secure exploration? So the New South Wales government have a whole regulatory system. Meg is their acronym uh, as part of the geological survey and the titles. So we have prepared a, a drilling uh, application, which uh, we'll be lodging very, very shortly, to undertake uh, an orientation program to start with. So we're not looking too big, maybe about 3,000 metres of RC drilling with the aim to test with the spodumene at depth and to also understand the orientation better and the morphology of these pegmatites. Uh, so that should be lodged uh, relatively soon and we anticipate drilling, uh, you know, probably early Q4 this year. And uh, in terms of the sort of length of, of range of, of how, how far and wide you're looking to do the exploration or you're going to focus in on around where you've, you've got the samples? Um, well, at the moment, I think it makes sense to look around Triton, but we have a number of these prospects which extend over several kilometres. Triumph, Scepter, Lady Dong, where we know that there is uh, already... Um, lithium mineralization at surface. So we're probably focused there. And then, you know, we'll look at, you know, in subsequent phases, once we understand what's happening there, the, the rest of the pegmatite field, we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin and completely miss all the pegmatites. That seems a really silly thing to do. So we'll focus uh, and understand and orientate ourselves as much as anything. And then over time, look to sort of expand our, our footprint of exploration activity over the much larger um, pegmatite field where we know there are pegmatites that we can see either you know, through previous mapping or, or what we can see in the satellite uh, imagery where we know these pegmatites are you know, over a kilometre long, they're over 100 metres wide. So there's, there's um, plenty of volume of pegmatite material in that system for you know, hundreds of millions of tonnes. It's really about that sort of focus of, of the work that Stella does to, is to target that, you know, that lithium-rich component part of the, the pegmatites initially and then expand our uh, footprint of, of exploration. So if all goes according to plan in terms of the application and the permitting, when do you think you can wrap up the initial drill program and, and start getting some assays back? So I've got drilling contractors who will be ready sort of round about September-ish. I'm hoping it's going to be about four to six weeks to get those approvals uh, approved. 
with the current uh, pressures on laboratories in, in Australia at the moment, and the fact that this is lithium. So it's done by a conventional assay, but then because we've got high-grade lithiums, and we know at surface, uh, it has to go off for a, a over-range methodology uh, using um, sodium hydroxide and uh, you know, zirconium crucibles, which does take a bit more time. So it's probably going to be about six-week turnaround to get assays once that drilling uh, samples are submitted to the laboratory. Okay, great. And getting access, I mean, it's a, it's a different region from where others have been finding lithium in Oz, you know, getting staff and, and uh, you know, access and so on. Is that all easily done? Yeah, look, this is the joy of Far West New South Wales. There is nothing else there apart from mining. Even the, the pastoral leases and where the farmers are, they're all ex-miners from Broken Hill, invariably. Um, so access is really good, and there is a great deal of mining technology, mining expertise that's actually there in, in Broken Hill. Now, Broken Hill's been running for 140 years. Of course, it's getting towards the end of its life. And so there is always you know, an availability of, of good staff. It's a lot, lot harder in West Australia, for example. Um, whereas New South Wales, you know, doesn't have those complications that uh, we see over in the West. So, if you, you could just elaborate a little more on on the on the joint venture and, and the farming in and how ownership and, and who's got to pay what going forward. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Rodney. Yeah. So, just to clarify, um, Stella owns ninety percent of the project. We we've just completed the the acquisition in last month and Everest has a, has a 10% carried interest that may dilute to, to a royalty. And so there's a pathway for, for Stella to get to, to 100% of the project. And essentially the deal as announced is has a million dollars in cash and shares for, for us to, to purchase that 90%. Okay, great. That's excellent. We will uh, look forward to seeing progress going forward. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, welcome to the Rockstock channel. Good to have you on. For those who don't know, it's Matthew Boyce, CEO of Sodus Minerals. Matt, can you give us and the listeners a bit of a rundown on your background and what attracted you to, to Sodus? Yeah, thanks, Ronnie. Good to be on. Pleasure to be with you guys again. My background has been predominantly sort of in exploration in South America and in mine development in South America and also in in Europe and Africa. I, for the last three or four years, I've been focused on lithium here in Western Australia, where I'm based at the moment, with a company called Red Dirt Metals, where we develop two lithium projects, one Mount Ida project and about 13 million tonnes of resources on that. And I joined Chris Gale's group of companies. This is a company called Solace Minerals, which is a sister company to Latin Resources, which has had some massive success in Brazil. And joined earlier this year, primarily on the back of the fact that I've been South American focused for a long time. I, I enjoy working in that part of the world. And also I saw huge potential for Brazil's and land packages were very much unexplored in parts of the world where I think there's huge potential. And just in terms of the spin out and how Solus came about, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Solus was basically a spin out from Latin resources where it was a, it was a copper, a group of copper assets that were sold into a Canadian listed company called Westminster about a year and a half ago and raised a small amount of capital on that. And the objective was to drill out some assets in Chile and Peru 
with the idea of idea of developing a copper focused copper gold company in South America. And when I joined, they were just starting to look at moving the focus more more to the lithium side by by acquiring and moving into unexplored areas or areas where Latin wasn't based in Brazil, so more to the northeast. That's great. And just a bit about the crew and what staffing you have there and access to drill rigs and infrastructure. We've got, I think now we've probably got about 10 permanent staff in Brazil. We started off with myself about three months ago. That was it. And we've got a team of geologists we're going to be focusing on the northeast of Brazil. I would like to get that, probably double that within the next two months. I have enough staff on board for us to be able to man three, three drill rigs consistently and on a permanent basis. We've got, as far as logistics and drilling is concerned, we've just signed a contract to bring in two more rigs. And once they, hopefully they've been mobilizing very soon. And so one will be going into the existing Jaguar project in Bahia and the other one will be mobilizing to one of our other sites in Brazil as well. And just for comparison in terms of Western Australia and elsewhere, the cost per meter to drill, how does it compare? The cost per meter to drill are slightly more expensive than what we used, what I was used to here in Western Australia. It comes down more than anything to the style of drill rig that you're able to utilize in the early phases of these projects because without, without a permit for clearing, et cetera, but hopefully as the projects develop and we can get one more rigs on site and two larger rigs with a higher capacity on site, hopefully those costs will come down significantly. The assaying is about the same staffing through the employee costs are, and, and wages and salaries are fairly similar. You have different things in there, Rodney, like your additional infrastructure costs and travel costs and things like that, that maybe in Western Australia, you don't have so much as you have existing camps and other, and other facilities and maybe a more developed infrastructure, but it's, uh, it's similar, put it that way. And I think to summarize it. And uh, what's your experience been like in terms of getting exploration permits and look it's been it's been very positive so far it's been smooth sailing and we started we acquired jago we started drilling within within three weeks of actually signing the document so it depends obviously on the province that you're in the state that you're in it also depends on the the application well, not the application but it says on the state of your exploration license so if it's converted to a small mining license if you already have drilling on there if it's cleared, if there's vegetation, you can and can't move. So there's a lot of factors involved in it. But from where we've been so far, it's been fairly streamlined. Yeah, it seems Brazil is definitely a future lithium destination, that's for sure. It's, it seems to be very strong. Just if you can, Matt, you had some, you had pigmatite and drilled out in the market. There was, in terms of how much of it was spodium and bearing and so on, but seems a bit knee-jerk. I think there are a lot of targets that you have elsewhere. Can you just give us a sense of uh, after that initial set of results, all the other prospective opportunities that, that you have? Yeah, I think, look, really, Rodney, we've got over 26,000 hectares of exploration licenses. We have three of those which have drill targets ready for us to walk up and drill them on. You've got to realize that we've just closed our second tranche of that first of that placing we did in a month ago so now we are uh, we have all the funds that we went out to raise in the bank so we're completely liquid now we have 10.5 million australian dollars in the bank which is a fantastic spot to be in we have 
probably three projects where we can walk up and drill holes into the ground. We have a lot of news flow with regards to assay results over the next couple of months from different projects. And we have, we'll have project acquisitions hopefully completed as well. So we have a lot of things going on in Solus. It's a company that is debt-free. It's a company that has a very tight register. It's a company that has some very good ground in Borborema, Bahia, and hopefully in other provinces within Brazil in the short term. And it is, all of those tenements have, a lot of those tenements that we have known visible pigmentites with spodumene in them sticking out of the ground. So we have a pipeline of drill targets to test. We'll have a, we'll have a consistent news flow from now until the end of the year. And so I think the story is just really kicking off and developing. We're just getting a team up and running. And so the solar story really is, I guess it's like we're at the near where Latin was two years ago with our first outcrop sticking out the ground, the first drill holes going into them. And, and I think there's really is the possibility for us to become Latin 2.0 with the asset packages we've got and with the land that we are trying to bring into the company over the next month or so. And just in general, the ASX has been a great listing jurisdiction for a number of companies. Do you feel that that's a good place for Solus to be in terms of getting recognition from investors and fair value? I think so for sure. But there's also that thing, there's also the ASX in Western Australia is also probably a little bit more Africa focused, but luckily we also have that TSX listing and you get you do get the time zone thing. So you get North America, South America, they, they tend to operate and invest in that sort of space. And, and we've seen it with Latin, a lot of big fund money coming out of Brazil and purchasing and moving into Latin out of Sigma. So that's really a market that we want to tap into. So this is, it's, it's exciting because there's massive amounts of liquidity there and it's looking to begin deployed into stocks, junior stocks with plenty of place to run and, and plenty of upside and Latin obviously they were piled into Latin at about like a 50% discount to where we are today with them. And you've seen the effect that it has had, apart from it's all results driven as well, but you've still got that, uh, you've got that impetus and that drive and that, in, and that investment from those groups. And that's a market that we don't want to ignore. So could you talk about the evolution of that story and what you did there and why that's uh, correlated to the success you'll have hopefully here at Solus? Yeah, it was yeah, it was a good time. It was a sort of first foray into the lithium, hard rock lithium space for myself. And it was, we picked up an asset called Mount Ida, mostly for its gold and copper potential. And then we found ourselves with a lithium bearing pigmentite on the asset and then moved into sort of top gear and really is a massive exponential learning curve with regards to the lithium space for us and drilled off in a very quick period of time, a, a high quality resource there at, at Ida. And then obviously tried to, the company was, was looking to grow and we picked up, we were lucky enough to pick up another asset in Western Australia, which is now turning into, I think, a quite a substantial, quite a substantial deposits. And we've got the results and that's really it's a model I just want to emulate here at Solus and try and get as many drill rigs turning on the ground as possible. And we need to make sure that we can capitalize on where we are in this space at the moment and make sure that we can get as many tons as physically possible on the books in Brazil ASAP. And the quality of the pigmentites in Brazil is one thing that sets them apart from anything else I've seen. It's a very simple. They respond very well to basic metallurgy and recovery techniques, and and that's where I think that's where I think a lot of the opportunity is. Okay, well that's great because uh, the market is is volatile in lithium and other metals, but uh, when the backdrop is strong fundamentally, we've said it many times before, the greatest value is uh, at the drill bit. There's a great recipe for success and finding companies with tight share registers with good 
shareholders like Lithium Resources in your case, and and you've had success in Lithium with Delta Lithium. So all of exploration is risky. Lithium is not rare, so it is often found in what quantity and what grade that, but we think Solis has good potential. We like Brazil. It's a new geography for us. We've witnessed Sigma and are aware of the other companies that you mentioned. Out of nowhere on our scoreboard, companies that were 100 plus have suddenly broken into the top 20 or 30 within a very short time frame based on drill results. So we hope on our next interview, maybe a few months from now, we'll, uh, we'll see a similar trajectory for Solis. Just going to give a brief update on where I see the market and how things are looking. If we address the demand side, first of all, if you look at the latest numbers, those who follow my tweets, if you look at China EV sales, if you look at Europe and you look at the US, everything seems to be well on track. Coming in somewhere around 14 million, possibly better than that. Albemarle is a bit more bullish than I am, but that's on a production basis versus sales. And then if one looks at the energy store, battery energy storage side, which we are outlier bullish on, I think that is also looking very strong for the year. So as a total, I've rerun the numbers in the last while. It looks as if one looks at the downstream demand from cathode and looks at production of cathode through to the half year or through to the end of July. And if one assumes that EV sales are going to double from there, and we expect also much stronger battery energy storage sales. And so roughly a doubling of, of demand from there, then we should come in higher than my original forecasts and lithium demand for 2023 should come in the low twenties, just over 20%, I think somewhere around 21 and a half percent, which is consistent with what SQM was saying and a couple of others. Now on the supply side, import data of spodumen into China. If one passes that for DSO and for some lower grade material like Mount Marion, et cetera, and converts that into effective LCE production, then we're not seeing any supply surprises, certainly from spodumen being imported into China. We'll have to get a handle on where China brines came through as we finish up summer and on the lipidolite side as well. I've tweeted about that, just what Ganfen had to say, aligning with our impressions of the difficulties around all grades and around wastes and around other ESG issues for lipidolite production. Also a price sensitive product certainly when prices get lower and you're dealing with lower grade material. So when one calculates all of those numbers, supply doesn't look to be in excess. Somehow the market has held off. I noticed on the latest SP Platts weekly report, they were talking about one to two weeks of inventory from some talk. Market participants seem to be adamant to try and talk the market down, but we think as we come out of summer into Q4, I'm struggling to see how some restocking won't occur and demand won't pick up in the fourth quarter or 
at latest into early next year. But if we see strong EV sales and we know China has extended subsidies now through to 2027, but full subsidies through to 2025, that should boost things. The penetration in China for August up until a few days ago was 39%. So China really is running hot on, on EV penetration. So all looks to be, uh, to be very strong on that side. And Europe also surprisingly, but I think there are some, pick, there's been some pickup in exports from China, from, from Tesla and from a couple of other producers, BYD that are shipping those vehicles into Europe and generating sales. So as things stand, demand, if anything, tracking slightly ahead of what I thought and supply, certainly not ahead. The other thing to note is ex-China downstream conversion, Kemerton, Quinana, those are running behind my forecast. So they are taking some time to get to commercial production and uh, and qualification no upsurpri- upside surprises there green bushes and some other producers like pilbara looking to ramp up production of spodumen as we go forward that is something we'll have to keep an eye on but we do have fairly strong growth numbers already baked into our forecasts chris edison did the minres presentation a couple of days ago his projections for spodumene production out of Mount Marion and Wajina, certainly Wajina are probably a little bit more aggressive than what I factored in. And we shall see if he's going to make any moves with Delta Lithium. Apparently that's due out shortly. I guess the one thing to keep an eye out with production there is if Albemarle doesn't do another deal like a Lound Town or something to that effect and Minres is going to take its share of Wajina and do its own thing, then Albemarle may need Wajina to ramp in order to feed its new Chinese plants that are being constructed now and will reach 100,000 tons of production capacity. They will need some material. I don't think with expansion at Camerton and the Chinese plants, I don't think green bushes and a low Wajina output covers those demands, so they may be aligned with with Minres in order to push things at Wajina and get the fourth train and possibly a fifth and sixth train up and running. Elsewhere, we, we are seeing, although we I do think that prices should stabilize and possibly do better, spodumen prices, there are some indications of prices slipping under $3,000 a tonne depending on the grade, of course, and the impurities, but that is likely to allow converters to still make a margin at, at prices slightly below where we are. So it's going to need to be demand driven to give the suppliers confidence that they can hold back the volumes and hope for better days. So it might mean an improvement in conversion margins in Q4 or possibly Q1 in 2024, if prices do do better, but Spodumen has definitely has definitely come under pressure. I see low threes for six percent, but I, I have seen some indicative quotes under three for sort of the mid fives or slightly below mid fives. So that's the broad roundup. No supply surprises on the upside as far as we're concerned. Demand is holding strong despite 
We see high interest rates and headwinds in certain part of the world. We look on track for EV sales. We look on track for energy storage and then two and three wheelers as well. And to a lesser extent, electronics and so on that, uh, that are small players. Battery production is on track for a terawatt hour or better for the year. Filtering that down to, to cathode, even if cathode production, even if we've seen some inventory build at the end of last year, and we're going to see less growth than battery production, cathode is still on track to do by the looks of things better than my conservative forecast. So we should see lithium demand in the early twenties. And by our maths, that should leave the market tight, if not slightly short. We wait for summer to end and we wait to see how things go from here. Thanks very much. Keith, always good to see you. Welcome back on the Rockstock channel. A lot's been happening on your side, I see. I don't know where a good place to start is. Perhaps you can just give us sort of an overview. The EU came out the gates fast and hot on the critical minerals a few years ago. It's been a little bit quiet, but you've had some good news. Can you just give us an overview of how things are going at the project and how you see how you view the EU's commitment to getting critical minerals projects up and running locally. Sure, Rodney. Firstly, good to see you as well. Always good to chat with you guys. A lot's happened since you and I last spoke on camera, I think, but you're right. There's some significant macro things happening within the EU. We've seen the draft of the European Union Critical Raw Materials Act. We're hoping to see the final version shortly after the summer holidays. So that could be as early as next month or perhaps October. Um, but the key tenants behind that are very supportive. They remain the same. They talk of providing more funding for projects very much like ours. They talk of helping to speed up the permitting process for projects like ours, and that's very important. And then they talk of aspirational statements about what percentage of these battery metals they want to see mined in Europe and also processed in Europe. And both of those are obviously key positives for us. So very keen to see what the final version of the Critical Raw Materials Act looks like. What's very important to us is that we now have a much higher level of support within the Czech Republic. Since we've last spoken, we've had the Czech Prime Minister to cite. He's been very supportive, very positive about the Sinovich project and what that can do for the Czech Republic and for the region. And that's really important because obviously within the EU, you have a situation where Brussels can put in place policy, but if the, if the, the member state, i.e. the national government, doesn't take up on that policy, then it's much harder to get it implemented. So the fact that the Czech Republic, the government of the Czech Republic is very much on side is very helpful for us. On other fronts, we have secured the land to build our processing plant. We've taken a small equity investment from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is very significant, not in terms of the amount of money, it was 6 million euros, but the fact that it's a precursor, I believe, to the EBRD and other 
European banking institutions taking a much more active role in funding Synovets and helping us get to production. The EBRD is intimately involved with the European Investment Bank. The EIB is a shareholder of EBRD, as is the EU themselves. And the fact that we've been through that process, the EBRD has done a very extensive due diligence on us, I think is very positive for us going forward in the eyes of the broader EU and the banking system there. And just on that, Keith, I saw some excellent flotation test work and recoveries that you announced a couple of months ago. You know, that looks to be very solid. It is, Rodney, and it's really important because clearly one of the greatest negatives we run into when we talk to people about this project is it's not spodumene, it's a mica. And it's different, obviously, to a spodumene. And people don't quite understand how it is that we can have a host rock with a lithium grade significantly lower than the head grade of spodumene deposits and still purport to be a producer in the bottom bottom half of the global cost curve. And these sort of factors, such as recoveries, make an enormous difference. And they're collectively the reasons why Sinovitz will be a world-class deposit producing lithium chemicals in the bottom half of the global cost curve. Recovering 95% of the available lithium is unheard of in spodumene projects, and it makes a big difference to the economics of the project. Yeah, that's great. So Keith, obviously there's been things on the go and happening that's improved some of the metrics like the recoveries and the test work. Where are you now on on the DFS timeline? What are we looking at now? So we're still on track to deliver the DFS later this year. So it'll be fourth quarter of 2023, as we've said. It's probably going to be more November than September, but it will be fourth quarter. And what we're really trying to do is to line up the other aspects of the project, of bringing the project into production to coincide with the completion of that DFS. The test work is a big part of that. Obviously, the conversations, formal conversations we're now having with potential investors, potential financiers for the project, and that goes hand in hand with conversations with our potential offtake partners or our customers. And as the EU collectively moves towards a solution for their own supply of critical raw materials to to enable the energy transition, all of those various components of those conversations are falling into place at approximately the same time. Okay, great. So you'll be able to get to a final investment decision and have backing all at the same time then? Yeah, look, we still don't have a completely clear line of sight to FID because of the permitting situation. We are having some wins in the permitting, and that's not from the point of view of do we get our licences, it's more about when we get our licences. But that situation is continuing to evolve and evolve uh, positively. So we plan to have every other aspect or the aspects we can control in place so that when the final permit hits, we can push the button on Synovix very quickly and move into that construction phase. Keith, when I look at the maps and so on, that looks like pretty good timing if you look at downstream processing, if you look at cathode and you look at battery, that could align perfectly with your timing, construction and then ramping up. Is that Are they still all on track? Are you still surrounded by downstream investment people still keen? Absolutely. The need 
to secure supplies of lithium within Europe for the European market only grows, Rodney. That's not going to go away. And when you have the EU talking in the Critical Raw Materials Act draft about wanting to secure 10% of all the lithium consumed or battery metals consumed in the EU in 2030, 10% of it secured within the region and 40% that is secured from a mining perspective and 40% secured from a processing perspective, that fits exactly with our business models. I think everything's lining up for us and I think it's going to be a really interesting four to six months ahead of us. That's great. And just lastly, you mentioned the visit you had. Chez, your JV partner, they were also keen to see this all go ahead. They're still good relations and supportive. Chez are committed to helping deliver this project. They're as committed as we are. They own all of the EV charging stations throughout the Czech Republic. Their green energy credentials are increasing continuously. They have solar assets, they have wind farm assets, they have nuclear assets, etc, etc. So they, they are very much involved in this European move away from a coal-based environment to the energy transition that we're talking about and fully committed to getting this project into production. Okay, excellent. Thanks very much, Keith. Great to catch up with you. Good to see you, Rodney. Keep well. Great. Uh, welcome back, Ron. We had you on a couple of months ago and uh, you've put out some important press releases that we're going to go over here. Firstly, the company is embarking on a meaningful 50,000 meter drill program at the Mana Project, targeting the pegmatite extensions along the entire strike length. The resource is already at 36 million tons. Rodney's estimating, you know, with that kind of meterage, you'll get over, you know, 50 million tons. But uh, could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, Howard, look, we're really excited. Kicked off the 50,000 metre campaign officially last week. We're looking to mobilise and have up to six drill rigs on site, uh, several RC and a couple of diamond drill rigs as well. So if you put it in context for last year's drill campaign, I think we finished the year with about 45, 46,000 metres of drilling at the Manor deposit. And that culminated in a resource of uh, just over 32 million tonnes. We're now at 36 with um, some of the additional assays that came through with the lift in the grade. Importantly, we're at 1.13% lithia. And yeah, we're, um, we've got very high hopes of really growing this resource. It's got tremendous potential. It's open along strike and at depth. So a uh, big campaign ahead of us. Okay, that's great. Uh, and, and another press release, you mentioned specifically that the heritage surveys have been completed over the entire mining lease. How important is that for the future? Yeah, it's crucial. I think your listeners will be fully aware, Howard, that approvals is a critical part on every mine project, regardless of where you are um, globally. And now we're the tenement owner on the back of the 20% acquisition of the outstanding joint venture position with Breaker Resources late last year. We've gone through the front door in terms of our engagement, engagement with the tr traditional owner group. And yeah, thrilled. Uh, it's taken us about three months to get the, the land access agreement completed. We've just uh, completed heritage surveys throughout the entire mining lease application area. It's about two, two and a half thousand hectares, so a very significant area. And that allows us to explore, gives us access throughout the site. So great result for the company and really opens the pathway to, uh, as I said, exploration, but further project development as we proceed with the DFS. 
That sounds great. And uh, so when do you hope to finish uh, the drilling campaign and complete all the assays and, and update the mineral resource estimate? Yeah, big, big six months coming up. It's likely the drilling will sort of kick into early next year. As I said, up to six rigs uh, on site. We've got a 20-man exploration camp uh, established now and commissioned, operational. We're drilling for water as well. We've had some great success with our water targets. So there's a lot of activity at site. And yeah, we're looking to run the exploration campaign through to the back end of this year, possibly into next year. Depends how long that pegmatite strike is. I mean, we'll uh, we'll keep chasing the lithium as as far as as it extends to that that northeast extension. But we've also got some really great targets to the southwest. So explorations full steam ahead. We've got a really experienced team running that campaign. We've hired some additional geologists to support us. And then, of course, concurrently, we've got the DFS, which is running in parallel, and we've got the metallurgy, which is soon coming to market. We've got some incredible results that we'll be announcing officially at the conclusion of the metallurgical test campaign. But the, the MET is shaping up very positively, and we're, we're really confident we can produce a saleable spodumene concentrate here, and that's our core focus. Okay, great. You recently uh, lodged the mining lease, I guess, application. Could you give some color as to when uh, you might receive the, the mining license? Yeah. Yeah, lots going on. As I said, our project development teams kicked some, some incredible goals this year. And as I said, we completed a or have completed an initial scoping study, which had a number of assumptions in, and they've been progressed and improved as part of the DFS campaign. But an important milestone for us was having enough confidence in the project that we could submit a mining lease. And not many projects or companies get to submit a mining lease application. And we're one of those fortunate companies that submitted one. It's, it's for a significant area, as I said, 2,500 hectares. That was submitted officially in April. We're expecting that to be awarded by way of a grant um, either late this year or early next year. And that really paves the way once we receive the mining permit to really commence our pre-strip and commence mining activities on site. So um, the, the native title and heritage uh, engagement's tracking really well. So we're sort of, I would say at this stage, we're probably three months ahead of where we thought we would be at the start of this year. So making great progress. Okay, that's great. Uh, a couple of questions here just on, on DSO, because you've indicated uh, the possibility of uh, having a, a direct shipping ore component. You released some very encouraging results uh, regarding ore sorting. You know, how does this underpin or improve the, the DSO economics? Yeah, tremendous. We think ore sorting has got a huge future in the lithium sector. Those initial proof of concept trials we completed resulted in a significant increase in the lithium grade, but also a very significant reduction in the iron content. We're really lucky with our, our mineral ore body. It's very low. It's grading at about 0.4% iron in the actual pegmatite. Most of the iron is in the wall rock. So if you can come up with a technology like ore sorting to strip out some of that, or strip out the waste rock prior to feeding your, your beneficiation process, you can have some really wonderful results. So we, we have got a second round of ore, ore sorting uh, results we'll be bringing to market in the next several weeks. Again, outstanding success. Uh, you'll definitely see ore sorting in our flow sheet. It's got the potential to lift the total tonnage. So we're super impressed with those results. And I think you're going to see more lithium players looking at ore sorting going forward on a commercial scale. Okay. Are you waiting on the DSO study uh, to be completed before you submit, I guess, a final mining permit application? Uh, no. Well, the, 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 the mining... Uh, lease application has been submitted that that'll go we'll, that'll be granted regardless of whether we produce a we're not even calling it a dsi what we'll be producing with the adoption of ore sorting is a spodumene ore concentrate so if you want to use an acronym there howard it's a SOC. 
SOC, spodumene oil concentrate. So definitely will not be a DSO, it will be upgraded. And we'll be looking to produce a, you know, a spodumene oil concentrate using ore sorting in the range of sort of 1.5 plus percent lithium oxide. So a much higher grade than, than what's conventionally been supplied as part of this, uh, this particular sector. And we've got incredibly strong interest in this product from the downstream. So that gives us great confidence. So we think uh, there's definitely a near-term cash flow opportunity for our business. And of course, as you listed, listeners would know, we're, we're positioned in one of the world's greatest mining jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, all going well, we could be producing this, this bodumene ore concentrate as, as, as early as the back end of next year. Okay, that's great. Just uh, referencing Australia as a great jurisdiction, I know there was a recent report by uh, McKinsey out there that will just uh, give a heads up to that. I saw, I think you put on LinkedIn this note and uh, Jigger Shah, who we had on uh, the podcast earlier this year, also, you know, referenced it from a, uh, you know, spodumene to hydroxide, uh, you know, you know, potential. But uh, on, on your project specifically, your DFS was due to be, I think, Q1 2024 and a final investment decision sometime in 2024. Is that still on? And, and how are you thinking broadly about the project funding structure? Yeah, again, again, great, great question. And DFS absolutely on track for that Q1 completion announcement to market. And an important part from a sequencing perspective, that time is perfect because we are expecting to have the mining lease granted um, in Q1 next year as well. So all of those key work streams will line up. We'll have the metallurgy finalised. The ore sorting results will be finalised. And then the third part is obviously pulling together the funding stack. And again, we've got tremendous interest from, from the downstream in terms of partnering with us. Uh, on the concentrate side, we think all sorting will certainly result in a, a very pleasing uplift in the total throughput and, and the total tonnage we can produce through the spodumene beneficiation process. So funding, yeah, all going well, looking to have the funding stack concluded by Q2 next year. And it'll likely be a combination of sort of customer capital prepay um, likely a, a portion of equity and uh, also, you know, the export credit agencies on a global basis are really interested in our project. It's a critical minerals project from a, a stable, investable jurisdiction and there's very, very strong interest also from the commercial banks here in Australia. So spoiled for choice as far as funding goes. And as you know, this is proven technology. Spodumene beneficiation has been around for 30 years, proven at scale. And so again, from the investment side, we think we're going to have plenty of options. All right, great. And the uh, last question is uh, just about Kalgoorlie. It's turning into a uh, major lithium hub. Um, you know, how would you rank the location globally from a staffing, infrastructure, you know, port facilities, you know, relative to other jurisdictions? Yeah, that's another great question. Look, Kalgoorlie's in a league of its own in terms of its class. It's been a mining mecca for the best part of close to 200 years. So everything you need to operate a mine is available in Kalgoorlie, including the people and the equipment. Great expertise. And our project site, as you know, is only 100 kilometres out to the east of Kalgoorlie. So, yeah, watch this space. There's more to come. As I said earlier, as far as expertise goes, there's probably no better place to be developing a mine on the planet. So, uh, yeah, we, we couldn't have asked for a better location to be developing a mine, that's for sure. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Ron. That's all for this quick update. Thank you very much. As, as always, uh, great to have you. Okay, we're here with James Calloway, the executive chairman of Ioneer, who is one of the only 
senior managers or managing directors or chairman in the lithium industry who is actually on his second go round. But James was the chairman of Oracobre, now Allchem, soon to be a newly named merged entity with Livent. And if you look at the track record over, I don't know, 12 or 14 years, it was very impressive. Ioneer is a company that started its life and has most of its liquidity on the ASX. It is hard rock with boron in it, but they are also listed in the US in the last couple of years with not great liquidity yet, but a very far advanced project. I've called James Capital Structure Callaway because in Oracobre, he managed to get, I don't know what, three and a half or four and a half percent long-term tenor debt, 70% from Jogmec with the Japanese partnered with Toyota Susho. And you're doing the same here with a $700 million Department of Energy loan together with partners, Toyota, Panasonic, uh, Echo Pro, which just announced a deal for a cathode plant in Quebec and Beckencore, as well as Ford offtake partners. And you're also partnered with Sabanya, the equity side as a joint venture partner. You've talked about getting final approval from the Department of Interior, I think in January and being in construction in Q1 of this year. What are the gating items to lead you to make a final investment decision there? And then question number two is you've been very focused on this one stage one project. If you could talk a little bit about the growth beyond just the 22,000 tons of lithium and I forget how many tons of boric acid so that we could understand beyond this initial stage. Thank you, Howard and Rodney. At Ioneer, we, we are in the final stages of getting ready to start construction. We're pretty excited that we're the first one and only one, as far as I know, new mine that's received a notice of intent and we're, which is the last stage, put you into NEPA and we're advanced in our NEPA process. We anticipate receiving the draft EIS to be put forward for final public comments and getting our record of decision that allows us to build this very important strategic asset to phase one in the United States between Reno and Las Vegas. We'll get started constructions mid next year, and then we really will be able to maintain a very tight schedule all the way through to construction and completion and get our first phase into production in, in mid-26. That's our current estimate. And I think that's a good one. And we have a great partner in uh, Sabanye Stillwater and of course the Department of Interior with their loan. It, they've been excellent to work with. And so we're very pleased where we are. I just want to remind everybody that we aren't building, we are not building a spodumene SC6 facility. One of the challenges, and if you look around the world at Western built, fully integrated operations that produce lithium chemicals, those are far and few between in the world. And they're a lot more demanding and a lot more challenging than just going to make SC6 concentrates from spodumene. And so I do think that will create very important enduring value for the Ioneer shareholders by taking the long approach, but the approach that allows us to support American industry. So that's a, the key of where we are. It's a big project. And instead of just phase one, we certainly can easily see a path to phase two and stage three, all within the currently permitted areas. Don't be surprised if, as we are able to talk more detail about it, that you start hearing more about our growth. But I'm not talking about growth and other projects like a lot of people do. 
combat growth within the framework of our existing. James, uh, would that growth be processing more rock or because you've talked about like you have clay, which you just use as overburden. Would you be processing that clay like Thacker Pass or would you be growing through the rock? If you start looking at our recently released resource updated eat resource, you can see very clearly that we have a large amount of high quality lithium clay, similar to what you have at Decker Pass. We have very high grade lithium clays, and we currently are setting it aside on the side segregated. But there's definitely growing interest in that material. Probably the two more important things are just the amount of the borosilicate that we're our main production. There's a lot more of it than we could possibly economically just sit there. We're not going to sit there with 22,000 tons. So the expansion to building a second train is certainly something that we clearly will be doing. It just would make no economic sense not to do it. We've been doing a lot of, we're doing a lot of leach testing, a lot of work on this area. We certainly have availed ourselves with the application process for IRA-related investment tax credits. So... We, nobody knows the answer to how that's going to exactly work, but uh, we certainly are following that carefully to avail ourselves, hopefully, of investment tax credits, which, of course, are a positive thing for tax equity. But uh, we, one of the things that I definitely am seeing is in our engagement with the large international OEMs, and all OEMs, is a growing interest in how they're going to have IRA-compliant material. There's no question about that. But I do think that there is a significant appetite for direct investment in the lithium sector in the United States and other supportive environments for IRA-compliant material. There's no question about it. Well-engineered projects with growth like we have at Riley Ridge. And I think that it's remarkable to me, by the way, that, that the markets have been so naive, in my opinion, about our company. And no project's even close to being as ready as we are to build a large-scale facility. We have very low-cost structure in terms of our operating cost, and we have significant growth opportunity, which is clearly understood by the people that are working in the sector. The shortage is not going to be spodumene concentrates. The shortage is going to be lithium chemicals production, when we get our record of decision and we start construction, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be shaking their head and say, why didn't I see that? And I've seen this before, by the way. When we, I remember when we were about trying to get our final permit and get into construction at Oracobre back a long time ago. And in the end, how that worked, that we ended up making most of the really big money. And I think exactly the same thing is about to happen here at Ioneer. James, what product are you making? Because when we saw it fast markets, you're not going hydroxide. Originally, I think you were going hydroxide. Or could you? Has there been a shift in your thinking of product? Originally, when we did the DFS a little over three years ago, completed it, we had in that DFS we were going to build hydroxide about two or three years into the production of lithium carbonate. So it was part of our plan. I had hoped that we would not have to do that in the first five years or so because it adds complexity and difficulty, and we need to focus so hard on just executing with what we're doing. The need for high-grade, technical-grade carbonates very high in the battery supply chain, and particularly IRA-compliant. So we were able to basically say, we don't need to deal with this for at least the first five years of operations because we're sold out. 
And I'm delighted about it for a variety of reasons, but that's where we are now. We're going to build, produce 99% pure, not technical-grade carbonate. So where could you convert technical-grade carbonate to hydroxide in America? Of course, that's what is under development. For instance, a, an obvious one is one of our biggest partners in of all 7,000 tons a year goes to EcoPro. And EcoPro has already built a full-scale plant that's really a unit of operation in their cathode facilities to do exactly that. All of our partners had to agree to buy the material. So we have binding offtakes for five years and they know exactly what we're going to be delivering. And by the way, nobody seems to understand how important that is because number one, you don't have to deal with battery grade hydroxide, which very few people have been successful at doing just at that point. So it's for all kinds of reasons, it's a fantastic outcome for us. Okay, maybe Rodney has more. You mentioned GM maybe having a competitive advantage, but so much of that is just a function of what is the price on the offtake that they're ultimately going to pay. And so you signed offtakes with Ford and Echo Pro and Toyota Panasonic. Ford theoretically can get the same competitive advantage depending on how much they squeezed you on price. So how should we be thinking, how should the market participants be thinking? I don't know what Rodney's long-term carbon and hydroxide prices are, but is there a mismatch between those and what you've actually been able to execute on your offtakes? There isn't a price. There's a floor and ceiling mostly. And the argument, of course, gets into what is the, what is the floor base? It's all hydroxide base because that's easier to track. And then there's a slight discount to that because you're not delivering the hydroxide. And there's a floor and a ceiling. And our view was we wanted the floor to be good enough that we could ensure we would have a profitable operation and that we insisted on that. And then on the upside, they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be paying $50,000 a ton for lithium carbonate. This is a decision management has to make as to whether they want to try to be long and just bet on the spot price or whatever they're going to be doing. But I really don't think that's where it's going. And I can't reveal the exact price, but let me just put it this way. If we get to the ceiling, we're really extraordinarily profitable. And if we get to the floor, we're making money. And I think that's the goal that we have and to build long-term relationships. Thank you, James, for joining us. And good luck in getting your final permit and hopefully in construction. And Q1 is just a few months away. Great. Uh, thanks, everyone. And uh, thanks, Rodney. Thanks, Chris. So, Chris, just to get started, uh, can you provide an update on the drilling program over at Adena and Canset? Uh, how many meters have you drilled so far? And do you still expect to do additional drilling for the balance of the year? Yeah, thanks, Ernie. And uh, thanks for having me, uh, Rodney and Ernie. We have just started drilling again at Adena after the fires, which is a great relief to us. And prior to us stopping about eight weeks ago, when everyone in the province was banned from drilling, and, and all exploration, of course. We drilled 22,000 metres at Adena since last October. And at Canset, we'd already stopped drilling, but we had drilled about 5,000 metres at Canset. We expect, now that we've got one, one drill rig back on site uh, as of this week, and we're mobilising four more over the coming weeks, we expect to have five drill rigs on site by the end of September this year. And that'll allow us approximately... 2,000 metres per week of resource development drilling. 
So if we take that up to sort of the 1st of December, that'll give us another 15 odd thousand meters, probably nearer 20,000 meters by the end of the year at Adena. That, that's fantastic. And then, so you have a, about a 3.1 kilometer tread now at Adena, about one kilometer you fully tested. Uh, I guess, can you co comment on whether it's open on both sides and, and do you think that 3.1 kilometer trend can expand further? Yes. Yeah, I think it can. Um, the 3.1 kilometers is sort of bookended uh, in the west, to the west by the drilling done by our predecessors. And there's 10 holes that intersect uh, a couple of 15 odd meter thick uh, pegmatite dikes. And then in the east, we put three holes out to test a, a gravity low that went all the way following a topographical high out almost to the edge of our tenement boundaries to the east. And then right in the middle, of course, is the area where we've been concentrating our resource development drilling. Now, one of, of the five rigs I referred to earlier, we intend to have one of them testing the ground for that full length of 3.1 kilometers that we have. So the areas in between that we don't yet know what the mineralization looks like. But further to that, we also see some gravity lows that almost appear to be stacked pegmatites moving to the north. And in fact, towards that, the, the jackpot land that we picked up as our latest tenement acquisition immediately to the north and increasing our, our um, land position by 50% at Adena a couple of months ago. So that fifth drill rig will also be testing those gravity lows that go to the north. But even more exciting to us is to the southwest, we've also got another massive gravity low. And we know the gravity load definitely indicates a pegmatite. We just don't know whether those pegmatites are mineralized yet. But that's what we think um, this fifth rig will investigate for the remainder of the year, while four of them are on resource development drilling. You had previously commented that uh, your mineral resource and your PEA for Adena would come out in 2023. Is that still the expectation following the wildfires and, and any commentary on just the next key catalyst for the stock? I think we're still, it would still be possible for us to put out a resource by the end of this year. Um, it depends on what size we want to put out. And I think it's a, it's, it's, we're perhaps lucky to be faced with this challenge in that we have got a real pathway to 100 plus million tonnes at Adena. Canaccord put it pretty well when they estimated uh, based on really 700 metres we were previously drilling over the resource sort of immediate resource development target. Uh, they estimated 40 million tonnes. Of course, since they've put that target out, we've expanded that strike length, that immediate strike length to a kilometre. And then they, they noted that it could be up to 90 million tonnes if that entire 3.1 kilometre strike length is mineralised. We, as I, as I pointed out before, we think there's additional areas on top of that. So there's a real pathway to 100 plus million tonnes. So the nice challenge for us is where do we draw the line for the initial maiden resource? We think that we can put out, if we drill toward up until the end of the year and we get near 20,000 metres, another 20,000 metres, we'll be able to put out a globally significant resource, uh, maiden resource. And I mean, there are, I guess, a handful of companies that have put out a resource this size as their maiden. So we're weighing that up at the moment, still putting it out this year or maybe leaving till early next year. Uh, to put out something even more globally significant. But we'll update the market on that fairly shortly. Great. Uh, yeah, exciting news. It's, it's a nice problem to have based on all the, the drilling success. And then as far as just infrastructure and government and just, well, your experience working in Quebec, I guess, can you comment on 
how supportive the government has been uh, and can you get government assistance on just developing in the, the project and the infrastructure? Yeah, the government, from, from what we can see, has really upped its level of support from what we're seeing now compared to what we think some of our peers and, and predecessors experienced, such as, say, Critical Elements and Alchem, who began their approvals process um, five plus years ago. In that time, the government's realised that it really needs to develop its battery materials industry and it's made a lot of promises whereby it needs it needs projects like ours to come into production. It hasn't changed the process, but, but I don't think it should change the process either in terms of approvals. When I look at the approval process, both at the provincial and the federal level in Canada, it's really no different to most other first world jurisdictions such as Australia. Some of our predecessors have experienced delays and fortunately for us, all of their submissions are online under the COMEX system and we can see those submissions and we can learn lessons from, from those that have gone before us. And, and there's some obvious ones and I think we're tackling this a little bit differently to perhaps the way they did. We're well financed. We're doing all our surveys up front. We're doing additional surveys in case we have to shift infrastructure a bit. And of course, I think we're making great inroads with the First Nations. That's been very important to us. Since I appointed Dr. Genevieve Morinville, our VP of Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs, around four months ago, she's had several meetings uh, with our First Nations partners uh, at Adena, and that's the Mr. Steeny community. We think having the First Nations uh, on board is key. And then to your other point about infrastructure, uh, the recent fires really pointed out the fact that there's only one road in and out of the James Bay region at the moment accessing it from the south, and that's the Billy Diamond Highway. We have applied for approval to construct the northern part from Adena to the Trans Tiger ourselves. We're pretty confident that'll be built by us by the end of next year, and we're currently approaching the government for support to assist in the capital cost of that. That'll be a huge win for, for the asset. And on a related point, uh, can you comment on the availability of talent and, and rigs at the moment? Is it hard to get individuals to work on site given all the exploration going on, particularly for spodumene in Quebec? It, it was it was extremely hard for us two years ago when we first listed, uh, but it's become a bit easier now. And, and I think, again, we're, we're fortunate. We've made a great discovery. We're well financed. And I think we're a and lithium itself is a, is a sexy commodity to be involved in. We are poaching, I think, quite a few drillers, geologists and other um, exploration workers from the gold sector. Uh, more and more uh, of those workers and particularly younger people want to work in the lithium sector, which makes it easier for us. And I think because we actually have a discovery, it's a bit more heartening for exploration workers to be working on a, a real development rather than you know the potential for not finding something as often happens. So we are not at the moment having trouble uh, finding either rigs or personnel. Finding good personnel is always a challenge. Great. And then some of your other projects, uh, I guess, closer to the Valdor region with the cells and, and Maserac, are, the, are there any plans to explore those in, in, in the immediate future? Uh, I'm assuming the focus is mostly on Adena, given how promising it is, but any commentary on your other projects? We don't want to hold projects just for the sake of it, but also we want to have a pipeline of projects so that in 12 months' time, say, when we have a globally significant resource and a pre-feasibility study out on Adena and we're entering that project development phase, we've then got other projects following up behind it. Just if I can jump in, Chris, I mean, obviously Adena is fantastic and Ernie, you must be smiling because you've got a royalty on it. Is uh, Canset is still more likely to be their first project up and running? 
I think CanSet is likely to be the project after Adena. CanSet's still got the potential to be as globally significant as, as what we know Adena is going to be, given that it's a larger land holding. It's about 20,000 hectares. We've discovered that beautifully mineralized, really coarse-grained pegmatite outcrop sitting right on the Trans-Tiger Highway. And since we stopped drilling around that area, we've done a whole lot of new gravity surveys to develop more targets so that we can start drilling again towards the end of this year. I mean, it's got all the hallmarks of having another massive deposit there. Yeah, Chris, it's good to see you. You sound more bullish by the day. So that, that's uh, a good update. We move on to our next ASX listed Canadian play. That's Patriot Battery Metals. Very pleased to have Blair Way. On with us, the CEO. I see you put out an update on the project. You mentioned there your proximity to the Trans-Telga and power lines, and uh, you're developing an exploration camp pretty close to the project. You've had around a, a six-week delay. Can you give us a sort of understanding of, of the timeline and, and where things are, are coming back on track? Yeah, we've, we've had a troubling summer. It's been very difficult for a lot of our community and, and the sort of stakeholders that we, we work with, both you know from a work point of view, but also the, the, the greater community as well. So um, yeah, so the, the forests have been closed, but that's now changed. So the roads to the west are still under some form of fire closure from time to time. So that does restrict our ability to move some equipment to and from site. However, we are seeing that improving. We've seen some rainfall and the like. So I believe we're in a pretty good spot. We now have close to 70 people on site. We've got four drill rigs moving to a fifth drill rig. We're undertaking construction work, as you mentioned, for our camp, which is going to allow us to be more efficient this fall and winter in Canada uh, for our drilling, as well as we're doing our baseline environmental monitoring. And we're also upgrading our, our winter road to an all-weather road, which will enable us to utilize it uh, later uh, this year, this drilling season. So we, so we have an awful lot going on. It's great to be back on the ground. The drills are turning and we have a lot laid out ahead of us. Because I noticed with the mapping, there's a lot of outcropping pegmatites. That's correct. So our field program, which is part of our summer activities and into the fall, is a team of about four that are dropped down and basically our boots on the ground. Now we have 50 kilometers of strike. We've probably really maybe done about 20 kilometers. So we still have another 25 to 30 odd kilometers that we're mapping currently. We hope to get it all done this summer and into the fall, but because of the delays with the fires, we may not. Uh, we have to be boots on the ground. You peel back the moss, you take channel samples, truly representative of the outcrop. So the angle grinder is our field field team's most uh, faithful companion right now. And you do a channel sample and it's a very representative sample of the outcrop. So, so that's, that's something we've been doing now for a couple of seasons. So the guys are very experienced at doing that. And yeah, there's, there's a great deal of work yet to do on the ground to finish off. We know there's pegmatite. We know some of them definitely have phogamine, but we have to go down and map it methodically work through it. And that will help us for more drill targeting. So we are drilling CB5, extending it to CB13. We're drilling out CB13, heading for a maiden, re or maiden resource for CB13, uh, Q2 next year. But we're also looking at a CB8 and 12 or some, uh, is quite a big spodumene pegmatite cluster. So we, we have five rigs now and we are exploring or investigating 
adding more rigs. So by the time we get to winter, we'll have enough. So the plan is to uh, expand to MRE and then you say Q2 is roughly the timeline for CV13? Well, what we'll do is put out a resource for CV13. So there'll be one for CV5 and then four kilometers away, 3.8 kilometers away is CV13. So, and then we continue to drill that out. So there'll be two separate resources because they're not physically connected yet. We remain optimistic that they will be, but we have to prove that with the drill bit. I've been saying this for some time. It's very rare that a resource above 100 million tons uh, doesn't get flagged up and attract attention. You've had a recent announcement with Albemarle. Congrats on that. They paid a premium, 109 million Canadian Thank for 4.9 percent. I see there was a standstill agreement in that. You know, an MOU, non-binding. It's you know you're going to look at at some downstream, possibly a hydroxide plant based in North America. But what is it uh, from Patriot side? What is your objective? What do you hope to get out of that that MOU with with quality blue chip incumbent? Absolutely. So. Firstly, it's a strategic investment, which allows us to accelerate some of the work that we've been doing on the ground. So we did a $50 million raise in March, and that put us on a very good steed. However, as things have evolved, obviously, as the resource became more apparent to people, the scale of it, being the largest resource in the Americas, we were pretty confident. The next question is going to be, well, what are you going to do with it? Where are you going to ship it? Are you going to ship it to China? Where? What is your downstream strategy? So by working through this MOU, with Albemarle, we believe we can help define that downstream strategy. Albemarle is, is the largest lithium chemical company in the world. They certainly have a very proven track record of being able to process you know, spodumene as well as other lithium products to produce the lithium concentrates that are required for the battery sector the, and even the EV battery sector. And so to tie that in and, and define ideally a, a downstream solution, which is appealing to both Albemarle, it gives supply in North America, but also for us with, you know, defining a solution for sending our raw materials. But also the investment also demonstrates, you know, it's a bit of a validation, I think, of, of the project and also the fact that it supports us to even be even stronger in our approach to drilling and also seeing where CB13 fits into that as well. And uh, if, I don't know if you can, if you tell me you have to kill me, but can you say <laughs> what you're hoping for in terms of the size of, of all of these cumulatively, the deposit, it looks like it can really keep going. Well, let's just say we are pretty confident we have something pretty sizable. You can do the math. We've drilled just over three and a half, four kilometers, and we've defined in a very conservative NI-43 resource, which is quite different to a Jork resource. Again, I can't tell you how much different, but it is. it has slight, you know, different, different parameters that defines that resource. So what we've defined at 109 million tons of the CB5 is quite a conservative resource. Now that was over $45 million of expenditure to get there. And that was drilling about 3.7 kilometers. So, so we now have 150 million in treasury and we've got all this space yet to drill. So with 150 million in the bank, then you really have no need to come back to the market for some time. No, no, we, and that was part of the reason for that strategic investment. Um, there has been some, you know, sort of strange market pressures on not only our company, but also uh, some of the other lithium companies. But, you know, we didn't know for sure that was coming, obviously, but we, we had an opportunity with interested parties. We went through a process that we believe was very balanced and, and Albemarle came up as, as a strategic investor of choice. And yeah, we're looking forward to working. We've started work already with, with Albemarle and we look forward to working with them on this MOU undertaking and, 
we are confident or we remain confident we'll be able to find a very sensible solution that allows us to continue to build value for our shareholders, but also allows um, us to define that downstream processing requirement that ultimately we will need. We can, we can define the mine, we can define the processing for it, but there will be a downstream need. And we are not going to take on like many have to try and define and design their own chemical processing. And if we can work with a partner that's got the experience, it just makes more sense. And the beauty of that, I guess, which is, is my favorite, is if, if they handle and have the expertise for the downstream on the upstream, looking at your metallurgical test work, there's a good chance you can go with DMS. Those numbers look good. Absolutely. We're continuing to see that. And we put results out some time ago on CV5, but more recently put out CV13. And the network, we're not seeing any difference between CV5 and CV13. DMS is certainly our expectation. There'll be no flotation in this first uh, PFS description, maybe down the track, that may be something at operation number two or three, but what we have at CB5 will be our first operational scenario, but there's certainly potential on this 50 kilometer strike that there'll be more than one of those. Just to clarify, you do actually have infrastructure pretty close to where you are. Absolutely. So we have Quebec Hydro, we have a road 15 kilometers away. We've already built an all a winter road. That's being upgraded to an all-weather road, so that'll allow us to be able to bring people and equipment in and out by vehicle. With our snow road converted to an all-weather road, it will allow us to be able to move people and equipment even when the helicopters can't fly. So, so we're very fortunate. So that probably brings me, uh, you hear different narrative and dialogues and so on, but the key is always going to come down to permitting. And, and getting these projects up and running. Can you give us a sense of where you are on the baseline work and you know the time frame and, and how that's looking? So we're gathering baseline data last winter and this summer, albeit some of it was missed for the fires. What that gives us is a little bit of a head start with our baseline data, but our project description will be submitted by the end of this year. That kicks off that two and a half year cycle. We submit an EIS that goes into the consultation process. It's an it is an iterative process, both on the provincial level and the federal level. And then by around 2027, we see an opportunity that will be permitted for construction, build in 2027, commission and operations in 2028. This is an achievable timeline. Our ESG team and permitting team have been working on this for some time. As I said, construction by 27 and commissioning and operations by 28 is the plan. Okay, excellent. Leo, thanks so much for coming on. Good to chat and get an update. Thanks very much for tuning in to ASX Lithium Rocks, RK Equities' second virtual conference. Brought to you by our sponsors, Zalandez and Lithium Royalty Corp. If you like this content, please like it and share it or repost it on Twitter, what used to be called Twitter, now X. Subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to support us even more, please join us at Patreon. There are various tiers. You can go to patreon.com slash rockstock channel and see the additional benefits, including access to Rodney and my time on a quarterly basis. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you again soon.